Good morning. It's wonderful to see all your smiling faces again. In case you didn't realise, I've been away for five weeks, uh, enjoying uh, some time on long service leave. So thank you for enabling me to do that. Thanks to Phil and the team for um, you know, continuing the good ministry that is going on and obviously all those who serve as part of our congregations. Uh, we have the joy of looking uh, at these last few verses of uh, Genesis 11 and Genesis 12 together. So put, open up your Bible back to that chapter, Genesis 11, and you can see in your outline there the headings of where we're going. I uh, Thank you to our readers, especially to Nicola, for reading all those names. Uh, it's a bit of a challenge, but now we're going to get into those verses. Did you know? Did you know that in order to be born, you need two parents? Hopefully you knew that. You need two parents, four grandparents, eight great-grandparents, 16 second great-grandparents. We'll keep it going. 32 third great-grandparents, 64 fourth great-grandparents, 128 fifth great-grandparents, 256 Six great-grandparents, this is really hard to say, uh, 512 seventh great-grandparents, 1,024 eighth great-grandparents, 2,048 ninth great-grandparents. For you to be born today from 12, generous, from 12 previous generations, you need a total of at least 4,094 ancestors over about the last 400 years. Now, what should I take away from that? What I take away from that is this, that we should never, ever, ever complain about the genealogies that are in the book of Genesis. They could have been a lot longer. There could have been thousands more names written out, and we would be here for a very long time reading them all out. Uh, So, first lesson, uh, be thankful that Genesis is not as long as it could have been, uh, and we'll see why that is as we go and look at our passage today. But today, as Phil said, is our last sermon in the book of Genesis for the time being. We'll return to the glorious book of Romans next week. But first, let's think about the story in Genesis, the beginning of the Bible that we've been thinking about the last uh, five or ten weeks. What have we seen? We've seen God creating his world and making it very good. We've seen the beginning of humanity rebelling against God and human sin. Uh, Two weeks ago, we saw it all culminate in God judging the whole world of that time. We saw Noah and the flood. The the world's sin was so bad, God devastated it with a flood. But he saved Noah and his family through the ark. And last week we saw sin continued, the Tower of Babel, where humanity ignored God and glorified themselves, and God humbled them and confused them and scattered them across the earth. We've seen all these remarkable, famous stories, haven't we, and these events. But all along the way, Genesis has also had genealogies, family trees, lists of names and people and descendants. Why? Why all the family trees? What is the book of Genesis doing by telling us all these names? Well, first, it's giving us a picture of human origins. Uh, It's telling us about the different nations that exist and where they came from. But more importantly, Genesis is all about the promise that was said by God back in chapter 3, verse 15. Do you remember this promise? Adam and Eve sinned and God cursed them. And one of the curses on the serpent, on Satan, came with a promise. God said, I will put hostility between you, the serpent, and the woman, and between your seed and her seed, your descendants. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. See, what is God doing 
with the, in the book of Genesis, he's tracing that promise of the serpent-crushing seed. Who is that seed, that descendant of Eve, who will destroy Satan and his work? See, this is actually the thing that unifies the whole book of Genesis, the promise of the seed of Eve. This is the thing that joins the whole book together. That's why we have these family trees. It's why we look at each part of the story, and then in between the stories, there's these family trees, lists of names. They're looking for the one who would crush the head of the serpent, the one who defeats Satan, the tempter, the accuser, the evil one, who has oppressed humanity, who has hated God, and done so for thousands of years. So today in our passage, we see the very same thing going on. Uh, what are we dealing with in Genesis today? Well, the two things we see in our passage, you can see the headings on your outline. Number one, we see some more family trees. The family trees of Shem and Terah, which leads us to, number two, the all-important promises to Abram or Abraham, as God changes his name to later. So first, let's get into the passage. We get into some more family trees. And again, as Phil's been saying, it's very easy for your eyes to glaze over at this point and not think that these lists of names are important. Uh, but if we take the time just to notice a few things in the passage, we start to see how important these lists are. So having said that, we're not going to delve into every single name that's on the list. Uh, but come with me, look at verse 10. Verse 10 grounds us in history. It says, these are the family records of Shem. Shem lived a hundred years and fathered Apakshad two years after the flood. So when is this? It's two years after the great flood. Two years after God's great and terrible judgment destroyed the world and after Noah and his family were saved and stepped safely out of the ark. What does that show us? Well, it shows us that God is faithful. At the creation, God blessed humanity and told them, be fruitful, multiply. And then he said the same thing after the flood to Noah and his family, be fruitful, multiply. And then pretty much straight afterwards, what happens? They start being fruitful and multiplying. God keeps his promise. He blesses them and keeps them, increases them. He's faithful to his word and he's generous to mankind. And this is what we see. We see this family tree at this point is kind of the bridge between, it bridges the gap between the great flood and then Abram and the great promises that God gives him. So here, Genesis, it keeps tracing. Remember that line from chapter 3, the line of Eve's seed. Tracing the firstborn sons through the line of, now, Shem. So who is Shem? This is another bit where we can focus on. Shem is one of the three sons of Noah. So the two other sons of Noah now, they fade into the background and all the focus is on Shem because it's tracing that line of the promised seed. So if you look down the family tree, uh, it doesn't name every son and daughter who was born, the thousands of them, surely. Uh, it just names the son in each generation that gets us to the next generation, closer to the person, uh, the family that God is concerned about. So this, just, this is just the highlights reel of Shem's family line. Uh, so it says this guy fathered that guy, and then that guy fathered the next. And we know almost nothing about all these men. Um, but then we get Peleg in verse 18. Uh, do you remember? His name means division. So maybe that was when the Tower of Babel happened. Uh, and further, we get Serug. I like Serug. That's just my favorite name on the list. That's why I mentioned it. Serug. Feels good to say. Uh, and then down in verse 26... Have a look there. It says, Terah lived 70 years 
and fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Lots of names. But but what's the difference here? See, once we get to Terah, we don't just get one son's name. We get the names of his three sons. And so Genesis, what it does is it breaks the pattern or it slows down the pace whenever it gets to an important point. And so it's meant to catch our attention. What's special about Terah and his three sons? Well, we're getting, again, closer to this seed and to more significant events as we trace the promise from chapter 3 onwards. And so now the story slows right down. It focuses on the family tree of Terah. If you look over those verses, verse 27 and on, well, we start to get more details. And we start to get little hints of things that are coming soon. Here's some examples. So look at verse 28. We learn that one of Terah's sons, Haran, dies young. And if you go back to verse 27, we get told about Lot. Because soon Lot will become one of the main characters because his father Haran died young. And in verse 29, well, we learn about some of the women and the wives because down the track, their descendants come back into the story. See, there's all these little hints of things that are yet to come in the story that are coming later. But the most important details come in verse 30 and on. So again, have your Bible there, verse 30. First, Sarai, he's married to Abraham. She's married to Abraham, sorry. She's unable to conceive. They had no kids. And we're told this just before God promises Abram, you will have many descendants. So how's that going to work? We'll have to wait and see. And then verse 31, we learn that Terah and Abram and Sarai and Lot, they make the big move from their home country in Chaldea, Babylon, Mesopotamia, and they go to Canaan. But on the way, they stop in a place called Haran. They settle halfway, they live there for a while, but then Abraham's father, Terah, passes away, and that leaves the way for the story to solely focus on Abram. The story zooms in and slows down, focuses on Abram as he makes his way and he searches out the land of Canaan, the promised land, the land that the rest of the Bible will now focus on. So now it all focuses on the story of Abram. Uh, You see, for these last seven chapters, Genesis 4 to Genesis 11, just think about this, there's been heaps of generations, countless thousands of people, huge family trees. But now that we get to Abram, the story almost grinds to a complete halt. So for seven chapters, we've had all these generations of people. But now for the rest of Genesis, for 39 chapters, we have just four generations. Just four. And it all starts with one generation, Abram. And he gets 14 chapters just focused on him and his family. So here we are at the turning point of Genesis, at the big hinge of the Bible so far. The story slows right down. Why? Because God is doing something new. God is doing something big. God is bringing in the next stage of his plans for history. He makes the next big step in his promise for a seed. A seed of Eve who would crush the serpent's head, who would destroy Satan. So now we reach Genesis 12, those all-important promises to one man, Abram. See, God, he's been in relationship with various people so far in Genesis. Adam and Eve knew him, and Noah knew him. Enoch walked with God. There were various people who called on the name of Yahweh, and God, he made promises to some of these people. And he's made covenants and agreements with a few people along the way. He promised Eve 
that one of her seed would crush the serpent's head. He promised Noah and all the creatures of the earth he would never use a flood to judge the earth again. He even promised Cain, the murderer, that no one would murder him. But those promises, they are different to the promises here that God makes to Abram. Here, God chooses and makes a covenant with one man out of all the earth to bless him in a different way to all other people. He singles him out for a special relationship with him. And we'll see what that means for him and his descendants. So why does God do this? Why does God choose Abram in this special way? Well, let's get into the promises and see what we find out. And I hope you know these verses, these first few verses of Genesis 12. These are one of those must-know passages. If you want to understand the story of the Bible, if you want to understand the gospel, if you want to understand Jesus and God's plans for humanity, well, you need to understand Genesis 12. If you don't, then then this is just another plug for the PTC course, uh, Intro to the Bible, that we've just started. If you're doing it, I hope you're enjoying it so far and it benefits you. If you're not doing it, well, this just means that next year there's no excuse for jumping in and doing it when it comes up next year. And if you do know these words here in Genesis 12, these promises, well, then we shouldn't take them for granted. We need to be amazed again at just how good and gracious God is here. But let's get into these verses. What are the great promises to Abram or Abraham as he becomes known as? We'll look down at chapter 12, verse 1 with me. The Lord said to Abram. We we don't know how God spoke to Abram or appears to him, uh, but it just shows us that what God says, his, his actual promises, the content, is what matters. The Lord God said to Abram, Go out from your land, your relatives and your father's house, to the land that I will show you. What's the first promise? Land. God commands him, leave your land and go to a new land. Why? Because I'm going to give you a land. See, owning land, having a national land, it was, it still is today, a big deal for humanity. It's one of the main reasons we have wars and conflict. It's, it's what was, it was part of what the referendum was about in, in recent weeks. God makes a big promise to Abram, I'm going to give you a land. Not just a plot of land, not just just an estate. I'm going to give you a country, a country's worth of land. Or more precisely, God will give it to his descendants. See, look at verse 2. This is the second part of the promises. God says, I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great. See, Abram's name will be famous Because from Abram, God will bring about many offspring, enough offspring to create a nation. He'll give Abram more descendants than there are stars in the night sky. He'll give him more than the sand of the seashore, more than the dust of the earth. Family and descendants, a family line, a family name, aren't those things still, to this day, so important for humanity? God promises Abram a multitude of offspring who will become a nation. But there's one more part of the promise, and there's a grand design and purpose to these promises. It's the last part of these promises. Look at verse 2 again. God says, And I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who treat you with contempt. And all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. You see the repeated word? Bless. Blessing. Blessed. 
the last part of the promise is blessing. What is blessing? Blessing is having God's eye of favour on you. It's his view of favour on you so that he then gives you good things, good gifts, blessings that you don't deserve, blessings that maybe other people don't have. Blessing, it's the opposite of curse. And that's most of what we've seen in Genesis so far. Since Adam and Eve sinned, God has cursed humanity and his world. He's punished them and judged them rightly for their sin. Yet he's still gracious. He doesn't completely destroy them. But now he goes above and beyond that. He chooses to bless instead of curse. God will bless Abraham and reverse the curses of sin. He will bless Abraham with a relationship with him. He commits to faithful love and ongoing love to Abraham. Walking with him, he, he will bless Abram by meeting his needs and making him into a prosperous nation. And that blessing will flow to his descendants. So that nation that comes from Abraham, they will be blessed by God, that they live with him, they enjoy his favor, more prosperous, more blessed than the nations around them. But it doesn't even stop there. Because it says, you will be a blessing, Abram. And all peoples, all the nations of the earth will be blessed through you. See, see, the other tribes and peoples who come into contact with you, they will benefit from you. They will be blessed by you. That's how my blessing works. See, the rest of Genesis and the rest of the Old Testament is the story of God fulfilling these promises of giving the nation of Israel land, of, of blessing Abraham's family, and then for them to bless the rest of the world. Abram has his first descendants. They turn into many descendants. God gives them the promised land in Canaan, which we just read about. God blesses those and blesses their neighbors through them. That's what we see God do in the rest of Genesis, the rest of the Old Testament. And when you stop and think about it, that really, just in and of itself, is incredible. For a random nobody from a backwater of Mesopotamia, Abram, whose wife can't have children, for him, out of the blue, to, to hear the voice of the one true God and creator of everything and to have God's absolute promise and commitment to him that he will give Abram countless descendants to become a great nation playing on the world stage, famous thousands of years later. Everyone knows the name of the nation of Israel today. For most of us, and most of all, sorry, for this random undeserving man to receive the focus of all God's blessing and promises and protection and care out of all the people on the earth. See, maybe our modern ears just find this hard to comprehend. Or maybe we're just really familiar with the story and we don't realize how amazing it is. But these promises to Abram are outlandish. They're super abundant. They're, they're beyond the imagination of an ancient man let alone us, even us. It's beyond our grasp if we stop and think about it for just a moment. See, I think to get our heads around it in our globalised world, uh, it would be like if someone said to you today, I'm going to give you North America or I'm going to give you the continent of Africa. You can be the president and you'll have countless descendants to fill that continent and rule it and enjoy it. Maybe that captures just the bigness to our modern ears. What would it be like if God showed up and said that to you? This is what it's like for Abram. These promises are huge. Even if we just think of them physically and what they mean for this world and this life, let alone for what they mean spiritually and what they mean for eternity, for the world to come. See, God chooses Abram. 
And he loves him and he makes these outlandish and generous promises to him and his offspring. God is the God who graciously chooses to bless. Despite human sin, which is all we've seen for about seven chapters in Genesis, despite humanity rebelling against him time and time again, ignoring their creator, God doesn't give up on his creation. He doesn't give up on the humanity he made in his image. See, we're meant to, at this point, just stand back again in awe of God. Wow, God, Yahweh, the God of Abram, the one true God and creator, you are good. He's kind. He's generous. He does what he doesn't have to do. He does what no human would do in a million years. He doesn't treat his creatures as they deserve. He relents and he shows grace and patience and love towards them. He chooses some of them and, and, he, and he reveals himself to them and he waits patiently for their repentance and their faith and their worship and their obedience and he works in their lives for those ends. This is what he is like. And here Genesis reveals this character of God to us. And then on and on go the scriptures showing us these same things. Yes, they show us his holiness and his righteousness and his fearsome wrath, but also his abounding mercy and compassion and faithful love. That's what we see when we see here God chooses one man out of all the earth to become his people, to become the nation, his treasured possession. Maybe at this point you might ask, well, why does God do this? Or why does he do it like this? Why does he choose Abram? Let's bring it together with a few thoughts as we wrap up this part of Genesis. See, why does he preserve the line of Shem and Terah and then choose Abram and make these promises to him and his descendants? Was it because he liked Abram a bit more than everyone else? No. It was nothing good in him. Have a look at uh, Joshua 24 on the screen. This is later in history. Joshua addresses the nation of Israel, God's people, the descendants of Abram. And he says, uh, that Joshua said to all the people of Israel, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Long ago, your ancestors, including Terah, the father of Abraham and Nahor, lived beyond the Euphrates River and worshipped other gods. They were sinners. They were pagans. But, he goes on, I took your father Abraham from the region beyond the Euphrates River and led him throughout the land of Canaan and multiplied his descendants. See, God doesn't give any reason there, does he? Other than he wanted to. God didn't choose Abram because it was anything good in him. His family was an idol worshipper. He would have been too. So why did God choose him over everyone else? We don't know. You see, in the, in the secret counsel of God's own heart and mind, in his wisdom, this is what he decided was good. That's what he wanted to choose. See, we don't know the reason behind why God chooses who he will save, why he chose Abram specifically, but we actually do know the purpose, the goal of why God chose Abram. And this helps us draw it all together because God chose Abram. He made these promises to him. Why? as we see, to fulfill all his plans for his creation, for humanity and for his glory. And we actually see this right there in the promises that he made to Abram. Do You see, they're all peoples, all nations, all kinds of people across the earth will be blessed through Abram. God will bless Abram and his descendants, and through them, 
He will bring blessing to the world. They will be the vessel, the channel, and bring God's blessing to the world. And you can trace this through the whole Bible. We don't have time to do it now. We can't trace it all out. But if we did, we could look at Abram and Sarah, and we could look at Joseph. We could look at Hannah and David and Solomon and Elijah and Daniel, and we could see how God blessed the nations as he blessed them. That's, what we, that's why we have intro to the Bible. That's why we uh, hopefully make that godly habit of, of opening up the Scriptures ourselves every day so we can see yet another way how God is fulfilling these promises to Abram and bringing blessing to all the world through him. But in choosing and calling and saving and, and making promises to Abram, God was, God is still bringing blessing to all the nations. That's what the whole Bible, that's what all history is on about from here on in. And because we, because you and I, we have the rest of the Bible, the full story right here in our hands, we know that it all leads to and it all ultimately shows that God fulfills his promises in Jesus. You see, we read it before, those beautiful words in Galatians 3. You see, the promises to Abram, they weren't just about physical blessing in a physical land for Abram's physical descendants. Now, in Galatians 3, Paul shows us that God's intention was always that Abram's promises would be spiritual and eternal and bring spiritual blessing to the world. Let's look at it again. It's on the screens. Galatians 3. This is what Paul says. He says, Now the scripture, Genesis, saw in advance that God would justify, save the Gentiles, the nations, by faith, and told the good news, the gospel, ahead of time to Abram, saying, All the nations will be blessed through you. So those who have faith are blessed with Abraham who had faith. You see what he's saying? He's saying something amazing. He's saying that this promise God made to Abram back here in Genesis 12, that all nations will be blessed through you, this is actually God announcing the gospel of Jesus Christ ahead of time. See, when God spoke those words to Abram, what he ultimately had in mind was the good news of Jesus. That's how he was going to bring the blessing of Abraham to all the nations. And how did God do it? How did he bless the world through Abram, through Abraham? Uh, Because he sent the great descendant of Abram, his son, uh, the Lord Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth, from Israel's tribe of Judah, the Christ, the Messiah, the King promised in the line of David. All of those uh, pictures and family trees in the Old Testament come together and center on him, Jesus. God sent him to live, die, rise again, to bless the world by fulfilling the promises to Abram. Paul explains it later in Galatians 3. Have a look at the screens. How is the world blessed through Abraham and his promises? He says, Christ has redeemed us from the curse, the punishment of God's law by becoming a curse for us. He hung on the cross. Because it is written, everyone who is hung on a tree is cursed. The purpose, God's purpose, was that the blessing of Abraham would come to the Gentiles, the nations, by Jesus Christ. So that we could receive the promised spirit through faith. See, through the cross of Christ, through faith in him, we have the blessing promised to Abraham. We have God's blessing given to us through Abraham. 
through his great descendant, the Lord Jesus. Through him, we are blessed, forgiven, saved, given eternal life, every spiritual blessing in Christ. It all comes together in Jesus. Every promise of Abram is fulfilled. The world is blessed as the gospel goes out and people turn in faith to the Lord Jesus. That was God's intention. All that is contained in those simple words we read in Genesis 12. So our response is wonder, amazement, giving the glory to God. Who is wise but God to plan, to imagine, to, to enact, to fulfill these promises of salvation and blessing to all the world? To fulfill it all by sending his son to die and rise and pour out blessing and eternal life on anyone who turns to him. Turn to faith in Jesus and you know all God's blessing. God's blessing through Abram promised thousands of years ago and you get to rejoice that you were caught up in all of those plans and promises and their fulfillment. But there's another reason. Praise God, as if that's not good enough. There's another reason that God chooses Abram here. And it goes back even further than Genesis 12. This is what we're going to finish with. See, why did God choose Abram and make these promises here? Well, the answer is because of the promise that Eve's seed would crush the serpent's head. See, it's back in chapter 3, verse 15, that these verses exist. See, one day God would bring about, send someone who would destroy the power of Satan, who tempts and accuses and leads the world astray from God. One day humanity would be free from the power of this accuser, from, of this tempter, of this oppressor. One would come to crush the serpent's head. And here, Genesis 12, God is just being faithful yet again to that word. He is preserving a line a seed, a descendant of Eve who would be getting there slowly and surely until he comes and he does what was promised. And again, who is it that fulfills this promise? Who is the great serpent crusher? It's Jesus. It's our Lord. The great descendant of Eve, of Shem, of Terah, of Abram and all the family trees that we see in the scriptures. It's ultimately why God chooses Abram here to get us that next step towards Jesus. The Apostle John says uh, in 1 John 3, the Son of God, Jesus, was revealed for this purpose, to destroy the devil's works, to crush his head. And there's so many places we could go to see this in the Scriptures. Again, we could spend a long time on this, but we're not. We're just going to look at Revelation 12. It says this, Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, the salvation and power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Messiah, Jesus, have now come, now that Jesus is risen and reigning. And then it says, Because the accuser of our brothers, Satan, the devil, the ancient serpent, has been thrown out, the one who accuses them before our God day and night. They, God's people, conquered him. They conquered him how? By the blood of Jesus, by the blood of the Lamb, by his death for us, and by the word of their testimony. See, the book of Genesis is looking for him, for the descendant of Eve, the seed who would crush the serpent. But praise God, we're not looking for him, are we? Genesis is looking for him, but we know him. 
I hope you know him. I pray that each one of us here and that countless thousands outside these doors know Jesus, the one who destroys the power of Satan, the one who releases us from the oppression that all people are under, of sin and death and his rule. So know the peace, if you know Jesus. Know the peace that, he can't, that, that Satan can't accuse you anymore before God. Your sin is dealt with and forgiven. And if you know Jesus, know the peace that spiritual forces, that demons can't hurt you. Nothing can separate you from the love of God that's in Christ. And if you know Jesus, know freedom from the fear of death. Because Jesus in his death has defeated death and the one who holds the power of death. He has crushed the serpent's head. And so now all that's left is for Jesus to return and cast him out. Turn and trust and know the serpent crusher, the one the book of Genesis was looking for, the one who has come, the one that we can know. Praise Jesus and thank you, God, for these rich blessings, for fulfilling us, fulfilling for us all these wonderful promises. Amen.